What's up, fam? Before we get into this epic interview with Kate Warren, and before she blows your mind with all of her knowledge, uh, I just want to let you know that you can actually see what the guests look like. On my YouTube channel, I have a video aspect. It's just the video part of the audio interviews that you're about to listen to. On my YouTube channel, it is youtube.com slash thebruceallen, and you will see it right there, smack dab. Sometimes it helps to put a face to the voice, a face to the name, and sometimes I can help tell a story more, right? Uh, Second of all, it would be nice if someone wanted to sponsor the podcast. I would happily shout you out right in this very segment right now and say great things about your brand. However, you know, it would be nice if it matched up with something that had to do with that's the angle. So that's cool too. But I'm not trying to sell vacuums or anything like that. But your boy's a starving artist. So hey, we got to eat. And lastly, guys, uh, yo, the podcast is rolling right now. I'm bringing you at least two, at least two interviews a week. And um, I'm just going to keep keep up with that consistent schedule. I'm looking at Mondays and Wednesdays right now, but no promises, but at least two a week. And I have some really, really great guests coming up. I don't want to jinx it because people are tend to reschedule and, you know, whatever. We got to reschedule. So, guys, uh, Kate Warren is super awesome. She is super feminist and super confident woman who has who has come really far in her 28 years of life and she has been photographing i think she said for like eight plus years so she's she's been in the game for a long time and she's just full of knowledge beyond her years and just overall a force to be reckoned with she is a fire hose and by a fire hose i mean she is just fierce and full of energy and life and opinions so guys um really hope you dig into this interview she drops some straight knowledge bombs on you and uh yeah so guys enjoy funny enough i used to have my own radio show in college and that's how i got into this so did i no way yeah it was called cerulean velvet no way yeah and what'd you do on your show i did the show with my friend storm uh which is his real given name and he is he was my gay bestie in college and he is still one of my gay besties and uh we would shoot the shit and play music it was like a like an indie music talk show dude that's so cool was it was it kind of like how my school it was like a uh the it was on all the tvs and all the dorms Mm -hmm. and like a short fm radio signal yeah yeah you could listen to us on campus oh my god yeah that was crazy mine mine was called positron's playlist it was when I was like a DJ and shit. And so, and so I'd go and I'd play like EDM and I DJ and then I, <laughs> no, don't judge me. And, and I'd bring in, I'd bring in, uh, like local DJs and they would just, I'd interview them and do guest mixes. Mm-hmm. And I, looking back on that shit, I was so bad at doing all that stuff. Yeah. But it doesn't matter because you're doing it for fun. Exactly. Exactly. Like I think as we get older and this definitely translates to a lot of different fields, like uh, people get really obsessed with like, doing something perfectly or not at all. Mm. And there's not as much room for playfulness in practice, which I think is really important. That's a big fact is like not holding yourself to that standard of if it is, if it's not like a radio show, then it's bad or I shouldn't do it. Yeah. I mean, I think just allowing room for experimentation and play Mm -hmm. in, in whatever you're doing is really important because that's where we develop and grow. Like it's okay to fuck up and not be perfect. Well, and even though the phrase fuck up, that sounds like a bad thing. It sounds bad, which it isn't, right? Like, because uh, ultimately, like, you're doing the majority of your of your growing 
through, um, through moments where like things didn't maybe didn't go exactly as you planned or where like you had blind spots that you weren't aware of or whatever. Right. Like, and it's important to allow yourself those growth moments without being like, I am a failure. Everything is terrible. <laughs> this show t- sucks. Why am I doing this? But anyways, but before we get too far, uh, what's up guys? Welcome back to That's the Angle. And today I am joined with local photographer, uh, Kate Warren. Hello. Yeah. Welcome I, to the show. I don't, I don't know how to intro you because, um, what kind of photographer is that? Is there even like a hole to put you in? Yes. I don't want you want to say that. Yes. Journalist. It's on my website, man. Should have read the website. <laughs> I, I do. I do. I do very light research. <laughs> I see that. <laughs> yes. And so you're like, you're like, you're basically essentially you're a journalism photographer. Uh, no. So no. I am a lifestyle and portrait photographer and I mm. work with, uh, kind of, a, I, run, I work with a, a gamut of different kinds of clients. So I work with magazines, newspapers like the New York times and the Washington post uh, and then I work with advertising agencies and brands to help them uh, think strategically about how to uh, tell stories visually. Oh, okay, okay. Because m- when I say light research, I'm like looking at your Instagram. And I kind of prefer it that way because I think sometimes if you go too deep on someone, you kind of get lost in the sauce instead of uncovering things about them. Not that there's, I'm trying to uncover anything, but you got to get what I'm saying. Um, and it just seemed like you, you did a lot of work for like New Yorker Mag and Washington Post, I guess, recently. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's insane. Yeah, it's fun. How 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 do you get into that? Um, how did I get into, get into shooting for Washington Post and New Yorker, or how did I get into photography? Um, we'll get into the photography, but like New Yorker and Washington Post. They called me. Really? You yes. didn't like seek them out? No. No way. <laughs> I in in some ways I feel like I as photographers like trying to get gigs and so you're freelance. Yes. Um, like. It's up to us to reach out. Not always. In my case, rarely. But then to never. But then you have the <laughs> leverage. Then it's like the, it's in your hand, right? Well, ideally, uh, you know, as an artist, you are making work that is true to your voice, and you are pursuing projects and stories that are of interest to you. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you do such a good job, and the work is cohesive and strong. The, uh, to a point where people reach out to you and ask you to do what you do for them. Oh, whoa. So what did that look like for you? And uh, I guess, which came first, Washington Post or the New Yorker? Washington Post. So how, how did that happen? Um, I've been working for the Washington Post for a long time. Um, I have been freelance for seven years, whoa. full-time freelance for seven years. Um, and they called me in for a meeting because Jeff Bezos bought them. So they had money. Um, I was part of sort of like the slate of this, uh, like a a, a big cohort of people that were brought on board, especially, especially like younger folks working in journalism um, when they actually like started having funding uh, to be able to work on more, more. I didn't know Jeff Bezos bought bought the Washington Post. Yes. That's insane. I don't think I've ever heard that from anyone. Do you read the news? I am not the most avid <laughs> newsreader, but but when people talk about Jeff Bezos, <laughs> when people when people talk about Jeff Bezos's like honorable mentions, I don't think I, I just don't hear it is Washington it Post. is constantly in the news, and he's Dang. in the middle of a scandal right now with National Enquirer that is in large part hinging upon the fact that he owns the Washington Post, and the president mentions very regularly, uh, wow, that Bezos owns the Post. They're worried about him and his, I guess, obviously his views slanting it, right? Um, yes, that appears to be what. 
that they are worried about. Mm, okay, okay. Even though so, he's not involved in the editorial process. At all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even though he's not, but it's like they think they're going to, he's going to like call him, like, hey, can you skew this a little to the left? Skew this a little right to the right? No, that's not, not how it works. Not like it that. just means that the post has money. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> They've got Amazon money. Yes. So, so well, you, actually, they don't. They have Jeff Bezos money, which is different. They got trillions of dollars money. They got. I, uh, I, I can't. I can't personally report on how much, how much they are like what their financial arrangement is mm. without having actual facts to, ah. to quote to you. I, mm. I, I'm, I'm probably wrong. But I'm pretty sure Jeff Bezos is like the first trillionaire or set to be the first trillionaire. I think that is a thing worth Googling before saying on the record. Ah, who cares? <laughs> the, well, you, who I cares do. That's why I work in journalism. Oh, yeah, for you it has to be like yes. perfectly. And yes, like, hello, welcome. We're on the record. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not afraid of being a little wrong about stuff like that. But if, if I was to guess about someone being wrong. That's how Donald Trump feels about facts. Oh God, please. So, please, do, so please, do better. Please, please do not correlate anything about this podcast to Donald Trump. Please do better. Please don't. Please don't. I think we all are intelligent human beings here with working thumbs. Like you can do a Google before you are quoting facts that include numbers. Well, it's like, it's like when you've heard something once and it's like, when I think about things, I don't sit there and, and I'm like, okay, am I hundred percent correct? Jeff Bezos is about to be first trillionaire. It's like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense to me. Nah, this is not like an intuitive thing. It's like an either it's a fact or it's or it's not. <laughs> mm, I mean, this is very true. It's like the journalism side of you. It's like the hardcore journalism, just like Facts. fact or not. Nah. Correct. Yes. Okay. Actually, it was. It's interesting. I have a friend who works at the Post, and she runs um, the arm of the Post that is in charge of fact checking everything that the president says. Damn. Um, which is a huge, which is a huge, huge deal. Um, wow. And a newspaper has never had to invest in an entire team of people to do that before. Um, but because he does exactly what you just did, frankly, um, I, so I, I often am, they have the to have though. a I'm whole team of people in order to like fact check. And so now they're in the process of um, sort of expanding that offering and thinking through how they communicate the importance of truth um, through different avenues of, of media and reporting. Uh, which is cool because they're going to change. They're going to expand the um, the format through which they 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 provide that reporting and not just do kind of written articles, but they're going to do it, it through other mediums as well, which is going to be awesome. How big is his team? Um, a couple people. What? So every um, time he gets on Twitter, every Meg time Meg Kelly runs it. Yep. Anytime anything happens, and Megan Kelly runs it. What? I figured they'd be homies. They're both both. No, no, right. not Megan Kelly. A woman named Meg oh, Kelly. Oh, 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 my fault, Meg Kelly. <laughs> that's, that's not so great. Yeah. It's really, it's a really important. It's really important. So work. what percentage of what he says is, is just wrong. Uh, that is a thing that you can go and read about if you, on, if you on had, their whole platform. I know I'm not going to approximate. You can't even guess. <laughs> no, I know. And I, I'm no. Okay. Uh, I mean a lot, like a lot, a lot is he, and they, and they'll differentiate, um, and say like, this is a lie. Like this is just like straight up, like 100% untrue. Um, and then they'll talk about why and they'll provide like the actual, the, the real information. Um, or they will say like, um, this is misleading and they will talk about how and why that is. So they'll provide more nuanced context for statements. Um, or they will say if something is true, which happens far less frequently. That is an interesting job. I'd, I'd love to meet that person at a bar. I'm like, you do what? It's great. What? Yeah. Yeah. She is, um, she is a rigorous uh, journalist and is 
a MacGyver of research. It's pretty amazing, <laughs> oh right? Like how do you, where do you go to find out, um, you know, about this, like, you know, obscure statement that he made about, you know, say like, that's very true. The, uh, about how, for instance, this is, you know, I was just reading this article about something they were fact checking about how, like, uh, you know, about how the crime in El Paso has, um, it, it, it is correlated to like border activity when in fact, like El Paso is actually one of the safest small cities in the country and crime has gone down <laughs> and not related to like not related to the immigration issue. And that's a fact. Correct. <sighs> the, and those are numbers that you can go and check. Right. And so like, she's like looking up crime, so crime it's per capita, no Paso is all this stuff. You know, yeah, to yeah. sort of loop it back around, like it is important that we like hold ourselves um, to high standards of truth, especially in a time where that is not something that's being valued. And that's, uh, that is a way of, of weaponizing, right? Like if you, mm. he is assuming people won't check and he's, and he's assuming that people are ignorant. And can't understand complex issues because he he himself like won't read briefs and things like that, right? Like so he doesn't understand the context of these things either. So it's important that we set a higher bar for understanding like what truth means within this context because he's using it to leverage power over people he finds to be ignorant. Dang, I I really do not want to get in politics on my podcast. You're very passionate about this. Holy shit! So yeah, it's important. I think so too, but I think in, in, in like some photographers work, they take up this mantle like you, like of, um, coming out about, so not coming up, but like standing for certain social issues. I remember even the first conversation I had with you, you were telling me about uh, how you were like photographing witches, but it's not just the fact you're photographing witches. Um, and a little bit of research I did do, okay. Uh, is you're photographing witches because it's not like the white male thing or not white male, but it's not male dominated what, what is it? What did mm-hmm. you say again? I, I, I'm kind of like misquoting it, but you picked up the story because it wasn't um, male driven something like what, what was my that? editor at the Washington Post contacted me, Dudley Brooks, shouting out. And he uh, he was like, hey, what would you do with six pages on spirituality? Mm. And asked me to pitch him uh, for the magazine. And um, originally I wanted to do um, like feminist activist nuns because um, there are groups of nuns who are like who are very progressively feminist, which is really awesome. None of those groups exist within this region. So I um, sort of set that story aside for another time and um, started thinking through like what other sort of approaches um, I might take. And he asked me this during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. um, And I'd been on like a three week assignment uh, for Kodak doing street photography for a brand. And um, so I was walking around out in the world with my camera all the time and was being harassed on the street by men a lot. Like Whoa. guys would follow me in their cars or catcall me and like. And it didn't matter where you were, DC, New York, no, everywhere. No, 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 no. That stuff happens everywhere. Wow. <laughs> Which will be unsurprising to everyone. Yeah, everyone, that's very unsurprising. Every woman. So, so I'd been subjected to all this harassment and it was during the Kavanaugh hearings, which were obviously very triggering for uh, women in particular, particularly uh, women who are had any experiences around sexual assault, um, mm-hmm. which I do unsurprisingly as most women do. Um, and so I wanted to respond to his question around what I would do on spirituality in a way that would not have, not force me to interact with uh, men in power, particularly, mm-hmm. and most um, 
organized religions um, are patriarchal in nature, right? That's very like true. they're like you're not allowed to have women priests or cardinals or bishops or popes or uh, women are are like kept at lower le- grassroots levels of the organizations. Um, and in in a lot of these um, sort of religious um, frameworks, women are treated as property, right? Like, like you belong to your husband and you have to obey him. Like it's cause it's in the Bible and right. it says so in this book that was written by a man, right? <laughs> like, Oh, by the way, <laughs> right? Like it's not God's book. Cause like this was oral tradition passed down by men across hundreds of years before it was actually written down by a man. So like, of course these systems are in place to like maintain that power structure. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to look for a story that would do the opposite of that that would empower women and queer people and other people who are subjugated by these patriarchal spiritual structures. And so the answer to that, of course, is witches. That blew my mind. And when you were telling me about that while you're in dinner, I was like, what kind of an assignment is this? So are you, are you telling me that you're walking around with your camera, getting harassed and you just stumble across some, like, how does this, how does this happen? Like, is it just, you, you came into contact with the witch? No, no, no. So I, I the, you know, and I provided that context to give you a sense of like where my, my mindset yeah, was. Exactly. Um, so I pitched the idea of witches to, uh, my editor and he agreed. Oh, so you already kind of like knew about it. I have, uh, yeah, I have friends who are in sort of, or in the wellness space. And, um, I have a friend who self-identifies as a witch. Um, and I, you know, I hang out with all kinds of wild artists and like witches are everywhere. And so I, um, he, once he accepted my pitch, uh, I put out a call on social media asking folks to refer, uh, their -hmm. witchy friends. And I explained a little bit about the project and the context and, um, then I started getting responses and I started following up with people directly. And I had a friend who was a witch who introduced me to a bunch of different people. She's a producer. So I actually brought her on as a producer at the beginning of the project to help me sort of like get the ball rolling. Cause I had a very short window of time in which, um, to, to do this project. Like a, like a month or a week or how um, they technically gave me a month, but I was on that big project for Kodak. So I couldn't start until the second, uh, until the second weekend. So I had three weeks, uh, to report on spirituality. And so you have to, there's a lot like that's, a, that's one of those yeah, like, big like, life questions. It's like, what does death mean? Right. It's like, like ah! yeah, it's like, Oh God, I gotta, I gotta pretty much talk about your spirituality and do, and do like photos for it and do the write up too. Yeah. So, um, I did nothing for, for weeks and weeks and weeks, um, except produce this project and talk to witches and sit wow. in ritual with them and make pictures. And it changed my life. Really? Yes. Uh, because for, for a number of reasons, um, when you are sitting down and having like deep and meaning, like the most possible, possible deep and meaningful conversations with people around trauma and spirituality and, um, identity, how the, and how family dovetails into those things and what it means to be human and what we as humans mean to one another and how you find purpose in this life and what happens after this life and what, how you navigate systems of power and what personal power means and how you manifest that and how you manifest your goals Mm -hmm. and like this whole lot, you know, how you navigate ethics and consent. So you have these super in-depth conversations with, yes. how many, how many people did you talk to? 50. 50? Yeah. And so it was, 
I imagine it being like a I, rabbit hole where you talk to one, they kind of show you and yeah, and you exactly. just go to the depth. So, so once you start, once I started getting in, um, and I, I would express like my intent and I would let them know, uh, that I'm not here to tell their story for them or like give a voice to the voiceless. Um, I was there to hold the space for them to tell their own story in whatever way mm. they felt they wanted to. Yeah, not like and that's a really important point because as photographers, um, we are in, um, unlike any other medium, we are in a position of power, right? Mm. Like, cause we have the choice, we ch are choosing how to represent someone, their community and their story. Very true. And if, unless we are already a member of that community, we, there's a lot of opportunity for like narrative appropriation mm. or abuse of, of that story. Right. And so I wanted to make sure I was being a steward of their story, um, but not speaking for them. But that's really interesting because when you say it like that, it's like, Oh wow. There is a lot of weight to what we do, especially, I mean, it, it's like, it, should I be not, should I not be taking these like Instagram collabs as lightly? Cause I guess in that sense, you're still doing the same thing. Correct. Yeah. It's, it, you're still portraying them or showing them in this aspect, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And so you, you look at pictures of like scarf wearing bearded white man, na national geographic photographer going into Africa and representing like marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. Um, when in fact those stories can and should be told by people who already belong to those communities, right? Like allowing communities to why, speak why is, for why themselves. Why is that a bad thing though? So for instance, I just, I just watched a thing on Platon, Platon. Yes. I'm sure you know Did you see this, this mm -hmm. by the way, that art mm -hmm. of design thing? Mm -hmm. Abstract. Yeah, yeah. He went into uh, some African country and he was telling the stories of these raped women. Was he? So you think he was wrong for doing that? Uh, I think uh, at the surface, yes. Okay. Um, I think intent, as with any, his intent seems really good. As yeah. Hang on. <laughs> I'm just like I'm trying. I'm trying to understand here. I'm like that seems so good to me. Yeah. And so it, in, intent is good, but impact is more important. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So it, it, we can use that example, right? Like he is a white man of privilege going into a space where he has a way more power so than these women's a, he has male power. B, he has white power privilege, right? He's it, going into a situation. Okay. Don't. Okay. Okay. No, don't I just want to say, I'm going to finish. I just want to say he's, 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 he's Greece. He's from Greece. So yes, still in but, the white male bucket. Yes. Okay. Yeah. There's privilege that comes okay. with that. Okay. Right. Um, just in how you look in our, in the world. So, that we live so in. he looks white, seemingly he's white, white passing. So he's benefiting from white privilege. Shares the white privilege. Correct. Okay. Okay. Uh, you know, and so he's going into a situation benefiting from his, his whiteness, his maleness, mm -hmm. um, his like first worldness. And right. So there's like a class element there and his, his status as a photographer, which, you know, in that situation, right. Like he is dictating the terms of what's happening there. Um, there are ways to go about, to go about yeah, I'm gonna wait, I'm gonna wait. collaborating with people to help amplify their stories. Uh -huh. um, but it's hard. And I talk to a lot of photo editors and fellow photographers about like who has the right to tell what story. Mm, but the thing is, is he, wasn't he telling it with that doctor? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I guess that's where I'm like, okay, it seems his intentions were extremely good. But do you think that it was wrong because he was putting them on a white background and that was a control or should he have been in their homes taking their photos? Like, or should he have not even have been there? I think who, who do you think do you, do you, so you think someone from that village should have covered that story? 
the one piece that you have not mentioned at all here mm -hmm. is the storytelling ability and perspective of the the women themselves. Okay. You're like you're approaching it as though they like are objects that are being photographed. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm approaching them as, as opposed as, to like active collaborators in thinking through how their they their likeness and their stories are represented. Mm -hmm. Well, I think at the end of the day, it came from a good place. So, what would have been the per in your in your idea? What would have been like the perfect situation to tell their stories or to or for to share their stories? If I was going to go into a situation like yeah. that, I would sit down with the women and talk to them, mm -hmm. hear their stories, talk, and then talk to them not only about what happened, but about like the like the gender power dynamics of their village. And then I would ask them how they felt th the best way to tell. Their, to represent their stories and what happened to them, but and not just like what happened to them, because then you're de like defining them by their by their like status as survivors. Um, and I don't use the word victims because that's not usually a word that people who go through this kind of stuff choose to use. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a deliberate choice. Um, and so ask them like how they best how they felt would be the best way to represent um, like their story and then to work collaborative, collaboratively with them to decide how that would be manifested photographically. So they're mm. active collaborators in the process of making the images. As opposed to him saying, line up, let me take your photo. Here's yeah. a, here's an image of a woman with emotion on her face. Right. Ah, that's very interesting. Right. It's Cause then that also says like, this woman cannot be seen or is not values, uh, valued unless she is like seen and valued by like this white man. Mm, I guess. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard her story to tell. That's true. It's, it's, it's very true. It's very true. But doesn't it, it's, it's just so hard because it's like, it's hard for me to nav navigate it because I'm like, dang, well, he did seem so good, but to find wrong in it seems, seems it's like, not or, black or, and white, right? Like you can exactly. have, There's you can have intention, like you can have a good intention and then say like, okay, like what is, what is my goal here? Mm -hmm. Like my, my goal is to like amplify the stories of these women. Okay. How do I like, what is the, what is the best way to do that? Where their voices are the ones being amplified. Their stories are the ones being amplified and not just like Platon goes to Africa. And puts them on a white background and then makes this nice grainy image that just looks like all those other photos. Correct. Mm, that's interesting. Your perspective is so different than like my perspectives of just a lot of things. This is, I'm learning a lot from you. Yeah. This is cool. So back to the, the witch thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to hear about the depths that this took you. Mm -hmm. Like I want to hear about like where this, this, like the depths of this journey took you. Um, witches are sort of like the X-Men. Like every witch has like her own special power or their own special power. Cause of course, like anyone can be a witch. So like specialized witches. Yeah. Everybody, everybody sort of has like, um, sort of a couple of things that, that they, that they specialize in and do really, and do really well. Um, depending upon their cultural context, their background, their heritage, um, their areas of interest there. And then they're like, they're like, personal, what feels good for them tapping into like their personal power. Um, so you have, uh, so there's sort of like a buffet of different sort of like witchy things. So like what, what would be some of the specialties? Um, so for instance, like herbology, Okay. if you're a garden witch or like a hedge witch, you are like, you're growing plants. You're really connected to like all witches are really connected to the earth, but through sort of like different, different, uh, gateways. 
And so if you're a garden witch, you're like, you're growing herbs and plants, you are studying their medicinal properties. Chances are very high that you're studying under several different people to like, to learn more. Cause a lot of, um, this knowledge is passed down, uh, from person to person. It's not institutionalized knowledge to be used for practice, healing, for healing, for healing. Most witches are healers. There is a seminal piece of feminist literature that was published in 1973 called Witches, Midwives, and Nurses. And it talks about how in the history of um, the persecution of women uh, by pegging them as witches, this term that's used, um, most often those individuals were just female community healthcare providers. So if you look at the history of uh, the medical field, you had community healthcare providers in small villages who were practicing herbal medicine, they using knowledge that had been passed down through many, many generations. And they, so if you like were, were nauseous, you would go and see like the, the wise woman in your village. And she would be like, here, like make this tea every day mm-hmm. for seven days and then come and see me. That's a very shared notion across a, a lot of the world, always having healers, whatever it's a shaman or whatever it was. Right. Exactly. And depending upon which culture, and you find these, these individuals, these like wise people in, in pretty much every culture in every country all over the world. When fire was invented, it was used to work magic before and heal before it was used to cook. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is very, very ancient pagan knowledge. Right. And so as Christianity rose, they um, wanted and were patriarchal. They wanted to exert more control over these women who had power in these communities because they were healing people. The healing, I guess they didn't understand or something. And so, well, right. And so what would happen, and so they created medical schools, which only men were allowed to attend and to become mm. doctors. And at these medical schools, they would teach them to do things like bloodletting, right? Like using leeches and things like that, or more importantly, to pray it away. Like they were not, they were not teaching and practicing like actual, like medical, like using the scientific method, medical practices, the versus like the community healthcare providing women had all the, all of this generational time tested knowledge using the scientific method of like, Oh, this plant works better than that plant, for instance, for whatever Um, your illness might be, for whatever it might be. So like, let's say you get sick, you go see the male doctor who went to medical school. And so, and he like, he like prays over you. He like puts some leeches on you. Of course you don't get better because like that's a crock. It's kind of weird. <laughs> and you get really desperate and you're really scared because you keep getting sicker and sicker. So you go to the wise woman in your village and she says, I know exactly what you have. Like here, like, you know, take these herbs like every day, like make it into a little pulsus, like put it on your chest or whatever it is. Um, and then, you know, come back and see me. And like, lo and behold, you get better. And what happens is then that man who's all butthurt that she, a woman fixed a thing that he could not fix says, well, you must have been sick because of sorcery if I couldn't heal you and the Mm. Lord couldn't heal you. So she must be a witch and she has to die. And so then that's how they get that rap. And now all of a sudden it's negative. It go from like community healers to this. Women in power have had that power systematically stripped away from them across thousands of years. And the current medical system is an example of that doulas and midwives are a perfect example, right? Like midwives are female, typically female community healthcare providers in rural poor communities. Like these are marginalized communities already. Right. And so they have this general generational knowledge. They were helping primarily women 
stay healthy and be healthy and have control over their bodies and like have, um, um, reproductive autonomy mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. And they, uh, the medical, like the male patriarchal medical field uh, worked with the male patriarchal legal structure and passed a law that said you midwives with generations of experience are no longer allowed to deliver children without a doctor present. Guess what? Women can't go to medical school. Whoa. Immediately stripping all this power, all this intergenerational knowledge out of all of these rural community healthcare providers who were really, really knowledgeable. And now we're not allowed to practice. And that is something that is happening today. That's interesting. So that was, holy crap, that was an insane history lesson because now it's, it, it lightens the tone of the word witch, which just, I guess, has a lot of bad connotations. Which to, the word witch just has a PR problem <laughs> yeah. because it's a word yeah, that I has so. been, that it's a word that's been co-opted by men to demonize women who feel powerful. Hmm. I never, I never, never would have thought that's where it came from. Holy shit. So it, it's, and it's important to, to understand like the sociocultural, and we were talking about the importance of like, doing research in advance and knowing your facts, right? Like all of this context is really important. It informs the nature of the work and how you go about shooting it and making it and having these conversations, which is were accepting to me and open to me because they could tell that I had done my research and I had taken the time to learn these, or like, and to learn like the, the, all of these stories and traditions and to understand the context of their practices it's like very endearing for them as a, as a photographer, having this like that deep knowledge probably made them very comfortable with you. Yeah. Well, because it showed that I actually cared about yeah. them as individuals and their culture and their beliefs, you know, that I wasn't just there to, and there is a lot of this, uh, in this and a lot of other sort of more, like more fringe communities, um, where people are voyeuristically coming in for their own goals. And it speak, it loops back to the idea of like, who is, who is entitled to tell these stories, mm. right? It's very true. Yeah. You didn't come in there like, like, I guess like Platon did and you're just like, you're a witch. What's up? Let me take your photo. Speaking of which, how, how did you approach taking photos of these people? Yeah. So I explained to them the context of the project. Um, I told them that I was interested in investigating, um, the diversity and intersectionality of contemporary witchcraft. Intersectionality, uh, is a concept that is rooted in third wave feminism, but it's the idea that you can't talk about gender without also talking about race and class and orientation. And wait, so that's called third wave feminism. That's intersectionality. Okay. okay. And it was first introduced during third wave feminism. Okay. Um, so now when we're talking about current, uh, like the current wave of feminism, like intersectionality is like key and core. Like if you're not being intersectional, like you are not here to play. <laughs> mm. Like, cause the people who are most negatively impacted by, um, like patriarchal policy are women at the intersects of those things, right? Like they're poor women of color, right? So you're hitting like class, gender and race. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and if they're queer, like, okay, even, that's even, even harder. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, so I, so I told the witches and a lot of witches are queer and are women of color, um, and are living at these intersections. Right. And they have been persecuted like into like today, they, they are constantly being persecuted if because they're a witch or just because of who they are, because just because of those things. Both. Okay. Both like getting fired from jobs because somebody finds out that they're, that they're a witch. Really? Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. So I would go in and I, and I would say like, Hey, I recognize that like the term, witch has a PR problem and has been wildly misrepresented by patriarchal media. And I would use language like that. Um, I am here to help to hold because I take huge issue with that because I see that, um, you know, you and your spiritual beliefs, um, that are rooted in your connection to your own power and your connection to the earth and the spiritual world and how to move energy across those three things, which is really like all witches, um, are like these, that these stories are doing, are doing a disservice to you. Uh, and so I want to hold the space and that's language that is used in this community a lot. Um, but also in wellness communities and things like that. I want to hold space for you and for you to tell your own story and to work collaboratively together to make sure that we are representing it in a way that is true to who you are and what you believe. Mm -hmm. So you can share whatever you'd like from your practice. I'm not here to dictate. I'd like to sit and talk to you and learn more about what you believe and what you practice and why you do. Um, and then we can talk through kind of what that visually ends up looking like. And that's how you arrive at that conclusion is after that whole conversation, you're like, she says, this is how I want to represent it essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, and I just ask her to share, to share whatever she'd like to share or they would like to share from their practice. Mm. Um, you know, so we talk for, and, and we talk for a while and, um, and I, and they'd maybe say like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm really interested in, um, you know, in tarot and reading tarot and I work with clients and I also work with myself and I'm interested in the intersection of, um, you know, energy work through crystals and how tarot can be a really nice divination technique to like understand like how we can be manifesting our goals in, in really deliberate ways, for instance, or, you know, I worked with this witch who is a fourth generation Santeria witch who lives in Baltimore. Um, and she was like called in by her family when she was four years old and she's been practicing since she was four. Um, and she walked me through kind of her personal journey um, and how her practice has changed and evolved over time. And so then we thought, uh, and, and then I asked her to, to do what she does in her practice and allow me to photograph it. And, um, and so that's what we did. So she know. would like do like a ritual and you just mm-hmm. would kind of yeah. maybe, I guess, set up lights. I noticed you use a lot of gels and stuff for that. No, uh, that's all available light. Oh, really? The Witch Project is all available. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So it was very documentary. Yeah. Oh, wow. It, it, it to me it looked like you maybe set up some gels to kind of capture the mood or something like mm-hmm. that. No, that's all environmental. That's, that makes it even cooler. Like that makes all those photos. Mm-hmm. Those are some very powerful mm-hmm. photos, especially the ones Thanks. with like the Trump dolls and everything. I was like, Whoa. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then the portrait of that girl's face with the, with the nose ring. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she's amazing. Um, about halfway through the project. Um, so all throughout the project, I was getting readings done on me or with me. Of course. Um, yeah. and like I had, uh, usually through tarot, but depending upon like what that person did, um, if they offered, I would never ask like, Oh, you do a reading for me. Right. Cause uh, it's sort of like grabby. Yeah. Um, but if they offered, I'd be like, Oh, I love a reading. Thank you. That'd be great. It was a nice like bonding experience. Um, and so throughout the project, I sort of let these readings dictate how I should be approaching the project. Mm. So I really wanted, I wanted to it's take like learning as you go, I guess. Well, I wanted to take the idea of holding space which is the idea that like really being present for someone just to support them and not ask anything or do anything uh, unless they ask that of you is really powerful. Right. And uh, I think showing up for somebody in that way is an incredible gift that we can give somebody because it 
says, I see you, I hear you, I value you, and I'm here for you. That's, that's to make so you powerful. feel supported. Yeah. And that concept, the idea of holding space in that way is, is one of the things I learned from this project that has fundamentally changed how I approach all of my relationships and interactions. I mean, that idea itself is just making me think about my approach to photo shoots. Like the next time I'm doing a portrait of someone, it makes me want to kind of think about that idea of holding space. And that's perhaps how you can re- even get someone to open up or to capture that emotion, to get that look in their eye to, or to capture them in their element. Because the idea is that you are building trust. Mm-hmm. Like for me, the photograph is not my primary focus. Mm-hmm. My primary focus is on building trust with someone. My primary focus is on the exchange that I have with that person that I am truly connecting with them and making that and and I am adding value to their life through our exchange. I have something to offer them because I want to make sure that the the value exchange is equitable between mm-hmm. us. And I'm asking something of them, right? I'm asking them to give me their time and their energy, their likeness, their story and um to your point to like get come to a level of vulnerability in that space together right that's asking a lot of someone i think (laughs) like it's asking a lot it's not just like oh we're gonna take some pictures for fun like even if you're just taking pictures for fun keeping that i i really try and keep that front of mind um Mm -hmm. because i want to make sure i'm being a steward of whoever it is i'm photographing yeah no that that definitely is something that before us i've thought about is how can I make someone comfortable being around me and get them to open up and to express themselves and not be stiff as a photographer? And I, one of my inspirations for that was Avedon. He would be like, he would jump around in his sets. He would do crazy things. And by him being so crazy, it would make you feel normal and then make mm-hmm. you just kind of feel comfortable. Like, oh, well. I definitely I, do that too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm super wacky on sets. But it's interesting because you use the, you use the word make. Like I want to make you comfortable, right? And there's mm. even an element of force. It's kind of forceful. With that kind of language. Interesting. Right? Like, come in, sit down, get comfortable. Like, no, 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 you're just going to be vulnerable. It's going to be fine. Like, as opposed to thinking really, um, really carefully about how to create a space in which that person feels able to be safe. So like in like a more natural, less forceful way, like a flow and it's like a a flow to the show. Yeah. Well, and there's a level of, when there's a level of, of uh, consideration, um, around anticipating what makes people feel vulnerable Mm -hmm. and what their sensitivities might be. Um, I've done a lot of portrait work and I'm very grateful to my subjects. Um, and when I photograph people, I'm always, I'm always cognizant of what they might be insecure about. Really? Like Uh, physical or just anything? Anything. Yeah. Anything. And I, I create space for them to, to like share those things with me if they feel comfortable. Do you ever pointed out or you just no. i deliberately ask like hey i want uh, and i'll say something like hey i really i want you to know that like i am here first and foremost to be a steward of you and your story mm-hmm. is there anything that you want to make sure that i'm aware of so that i can be mindful to be thoughtful of that thing that you are sensitive about it's such a nice way of putting it well i want to and again it's about me holding the space mm-hmm. right like i'm not like hey i see that you're worried about looking fat <laughs> I, I i i'm guilty of not that crazy but like i've been in shoots where perhaps they have like an eczema problem like on their hand mm-hmm. and i was like hey you know i just want you to know that i'm aware of it 
and you know it's okay you don't got to worry about it if you want i can photoshop it out i don't have to i don't know where you stand on it and we'll have that conversation so instead of offering Mm -hmm. which is about you you can ask just like you did right so so instead of that situation give them more agency Give them more agency, like, hey, if there is anything, mm-hmm. please let me know mm-hmm. and we can discuss it. We can mm-hmm. talk about it. We can hide it. We can reveal it, whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I feel like that would probably get someone to open up more than just calling it out. Yeah. And make Nobody feel likes more to feel called out. Yeah. I mean, well, calling out is probably the worst way to put it, but I guess just yeah, being yeah. blunt about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And you, you are very... Uh, interesting on set because that's how I met you. And that's how I was. And that's even how I was like, I want to have her on the podcast because I met you at the Russian ball mm-hmm. and you were a mad lady. You were, but in a, in the best way possible, like I'm still very shy at events, especially events like that. I don't do them all the time. You seem like you're doing them all the time, but you were just the way you worked that room was in, so impressive. Thanks. Like you were just like, like I thought you knew these people. I do. Like, so I don't cover events. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the Washington Post originally years ago when they first started hiring me, um, hired me to work on Reliable Source, uh, which is their column around like social culture. Um, so covering like balls and galas and things like that. So that was sort of my, but we expand when I first started working with them, we were, I was pitching them and I was doing one every week. Um, and we were do, I was doing all kinds of wacky things like the women's arm wrestling championship and all (laughs) kinds. I'd, I'd, I'd like pick through all the things happening in town that week. And I'd, I'd pick something going on in town. Um, now I just do. Being DC for that time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, so now I only do a couple of different uh, galas for them a year. We have it, we have it sort of like honed that I, you know, I only do uh, a couple that are always very visually stimulating. Um, Russian ball being one of them. The Russian Incredibly ball simulating. is a, um, is a white tie gala held at a, prominent downtown social club in Washington, DC that is, um, hosted by and for, uh, Russian, uh, the Russian society folks who, uh, have some kind of, uh, lineage with prominent families in Russia. So you have the Bolsheviks and the Tolstoys and all kinds of people getting shit housed on vodka, uh, (laughs) and turning up. Yeah. And I've been covering it for four or five years now. Um, and I, because of my process and how I go about telling stories and I don't just approach it like event photography, like I'm there to tell the story of this community. And, um, because of that approach, I've made friends with a lot of the people who go every year. It's the same characters Mm, and they're very comfortable with you. And they, yeah. And they're very comfortable with me. Um, in part because like I am, I never dress like the help. I am always there as a guest as well. Um, and it, that is, is sort of in line with the idea that I would never ask someone to do something I myself am not willing to do. Mm. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a pretty adventurous, I'm a very adventurous person, I would say. Yeah, I'd say you are. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, but I, but that means I'm meeting them as equals and I'm, and that's part of like helping someone feel safe. Right. It's like, hello, I am here wearing this extravagant outfit, appreciating your extravagant outfit. And let's, let's talk about it. Like that, let's wrap. That, that's a, it's like, what it's does like this a, mean to you? How does this represent tip. who you are? Yeah. Talk to me about your community. Yeah. You know, like really actually caring about, uh, caring about the things that I photograph and I collect, I collect people. Um, I've always used photography as a mechanism for meeting people. I started shooting 
when I moved here to meet fellow artists and then it became a career. I never intended to become a professional photographer. No way. I was working in health policy consulting. And you said you moved here. So where'd you move from? I moved from New York, um, right out of college. And I had a job working for a consulting firm, writing, um, white papers and putting together presentations on the strategic impacts of Obamacare. Okay. That was my subject matter expertise, but I was moonlighting as a photographer in order to meet other creative people. And it, um, it took off because I liked, I like to use photo as a mechanism for meeting people and like forging these deep and meaningful connections. You wanted to meet creative people because of why? Just because, because I am a creative person and mm-hmm. I was acutely aware. Somebody told me like DC is where cool goes to die. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Which is not wrong. Uh, that hurts my feelings. Well, too bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a you problem. Yeah. DC is not cool and DC doesn't want to be cool, but there are cool people doing cool things in DC. It's very true. And I saw that when I got here. And so I used photography in order to build relationships with those people and to join a community. And eight years out, I am very grateful and happy to, to have the support of that community. Um, and photography was my inroads. And so even now, like whenever I photograph someone, chances are very, very high that I'm going to maintain a relationship with that person. Even if I have only met them once for 15 minutes while shooting on assignment for the New York times. But you're not actually like daily monthly doing it. It's just your friends, you're just forever friends with them, I guess. Uh, it, it, it depends on the relationship with the person. Like some of my very best friends I met because I photographed them. Mm -hmm. Um, but other photo subjects, we, we like stay in touch. We email, we text, we see each other when we're in the same place. Um, some have been become collaborators. A lot of them have hired me. Uh, it has become, I, I am very grateful for the, for like the very rich and r- the very rich relationships that I've gained, uh, with my, with my subjects who have, um, been made to feel comfortable, who are, have been allowed to be comfortable and be who they are and feel seen and have found value in fostering a relationship with me because of that. That's awesome. And can you like go more into about that that how how that happened like how you were doing this job and then creatives how does that process work when you were just like wait a minute i'm making as much money as my full time or oh, how, no. did, how does that work oh, how did no, that work no. for you no um in in typical dramatic fashion i was working a 60 hour a week day job and moonlighting full time on top of that like 40 plus hours a week so i'd go to work from like 8:30 until 6 and then i would go to a shoot or two shoots on assignment um, I was the house photographer at the Corcoran and I was shooting for Washingtonian and I was already shooting for the Washington Post at that time. And, um, Whoa, that you moved really fast. Like you, you were already in with these people from working the day job and yeah. then shooting for the Washington yeah, Post. Yeah. I started my like professional career while, while I was still working my day job. Um, and so I would go to these shoots and I would stay up until like four o'clock in the morning editing on deadline. And then I would get a couple hours of sleep and get up and do it again. And I was 23. So like I could do that. (laughs) And, um, I worked that job for a year. And then one day I got into the elevator at work and my boss was holding a copy of Washingtonian magazine and she opened it up and there was a full page picture of me in black tie attire, holding a camera photographer, Kate Warren. And she said, what's this? Oh my gosh. And they knew that I was a photographer, but they didn't know I was doing it professionally. And that was going around town telling people that it was my only job, which is what I was doing. 
And I'm Kate, I'm a photographer, right? Mm-hmm. Like, here's my card. Here's my website. Like I was, I was running a blog that a lot, that a lot of people in town followed. Um, that was called go Kate shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was posting pictures every day from just around town, sort of like a sartorialist thing. And, uh, they were like, we're so excited for you that your photography career is going so well that we're going to give you an end date working here. Whoa. So they pushed me out of that job and which was deserved because <laughs> I was definitely working on photo but stuff. did you want that at work? Well, no, it, nobody wants to get fired. You know, I mean, like, didn't you want to go into that more? The no, I didn't want to be a professional photographer then. I was oh, wow. raised by a family who like were business executives. I went to school for business. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, it was never, being a professional artist was never presented as an option to me. Mm. That was like what you did in your off time. And so then I got headhunted by Uber and I uh, was a, I did marketing for them in the early days in 2012. Um, And I was working 90 hours a week uh, when I was working for them. And so I couldn't photograph, even though when they hired me, I was like, Hey, I have this side thing. I need to be able to keep doing it. And they were like, yeah, yeah, it's great. Like you're taking photos for them. No, no, I was doing marketing for them. I was doing oh, community. Oh. I was a community manager really early. Okay. Um, and we were running we were running Uber DC in twenty twelve and we had to have cash on hand for when the drivers would get for bail when the drivers would get arrested. Like it, that early in Uber. Well, yeah, that those were very controversial times. Which is wild. And uh and so I lasted eight months, um, but the work life balance was wild and I was raising hell about the work-life balance going over my boss's head being like, this is fucking wrong. Like we shouldn't have to work this much. This is insane. Uh, and they fired me <laughs> like they straight up fired me and like, like we'll wait for you and then escort you from the building style. Whoa. Yeah. You got fired from two jobs. Impressive. Yes, I sure did. That's very impressive. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, not, but turns out 90 hours a week working for Travis Kalanick is enough to make anyone want to become self-employed. <laughs> That's the owner of Uber, I guess. Uh, well, it's the former founder. Mm-hmm. It is the founder, but he is no longer affiliated mm. because there were there was so many, uh, so much scandal around some of these issues. Okay, understandable. Um, he is no longer a part of Uber. Wow. Um, he was pushed out as well. So I left and I became a, f- a full time photographer because I had bills to pay. Yeah. And I was um, financially supporting my partner of the time, uh, and just like. How to make rent. Yeah. You got to do what you got to do at that time. Yep. So but, I like shot a whole new portfolio and took meetings and started getting more and more clients. I put things on my credit card and like stayed afloat and, did, and did, then like made it happen. Did you find that in those early days that the clients would all come to you or is it a lot of you seeking out these guys? I pulled out every business card I had ever been given at a party mm-hmm. and I called those people and I took meetings. Nice. Yeah. But they weren't like photo people. They were just like people, people. And you were just so I started any working gigs. commercially like right away because that's where the money was. And I needed money. That's interesting. Well, you commercial as in uh, like for even I'm just working still for confused. brands. Working for brands. Okay. Yeah. Or companies. Companies, ad agencies, brands. I wasn't that. working for ad agencies then. I was mm-hmm. working directly with brands. That's really interesting. So many people need pictures. Everyone needs and pictures. And I went to school for business. So I like used, put on that hat and did business development. Not rocket science. to to, to some photographers it's like you make it seem so easy to get clients and like getting these sales and all this stuff like you're just like a wizard at this stuff i don't think i'm a wizard but i'm I'm, but i'm (laughs) maybe (laughs) but i am committed to to building meaningful relationships with people over everything else Mm -hmm. like i'm not here to sell you something i'm here to like share a thing about which we both are passionate 
and uh, to identify a problem that you might have that I can offer a solution for. Mm, it's interesting. Problem solving, part of yeah. every business. That's the yeah. point of business. I mean, I, yeah, every business needs photos. That's mm-hmm. a problem for that, many of them. That's a problem that we're here to solve. And to, th- and to think strategically about how those photos are created and put out in the world and how that brand is represented visually is a solution. Mm, so it seems like even back then you're putting a lot of thought into how does this represent your brand? How is this going to be utilized? Yeah. How is this going to help you? Yeah, how is this going to drive? Because I went to school for business marketing. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'd been trained to do. And that's what I did for Uber. And mm-hmm. That's crazy. So, so you're full-time getting all these clients and now you're seven years in the game. That's impressive. Here we are. I'm two years in the game. And I'm like, oh my God. Everything's fine. If yeah. you can make it a year and a half, then you're not guaranteed to fail. <laughs> that first year and a half is like... Just like keep the water level like right here. Yeah, it's like, it's definitely around. it's definitely interesting. Mm-hmm. Are I'm, you doing it full time? Yeah, I am doing full time. Cool. And it's crazy. And so when I'm asking you about like the sales and clients, that's a very selfish question because I, it, well, and like the work has to speak for you. It's true. And like the work has to be good enough to speak for you. And mm-hmm. there's a there's a video um, on Vimeo that you can look up that is an, a really awesome animation of a, a spoken word piece by Ira Glass of NPR uh, called The Gap. And this piece became sort of a touchstone for my practice and my business. And uh, what Ira says is that, you know, we all start making things um, as creative people because we have really good taste. Um, But when we first start out, we don't have much talent. And because we have good taste, we, we realize that what we're making isn't very good. And so there's a gap between our taste and our talent. Mm hmm. And that frustration, the frustration of that experience of like knowing what you're making is like just okay, uh, causes 98% of people to quit. Ah. And so you have to like stick it out and slog and make a huge volume of work to close the gap. You have to put the work in to close the gap. You can't just like sit there and keep making the same old crap. Yeah. You have to like get critical feedback and hold yourself accountable and ask um, why you're making and, and, uh, what value it adds and to develop your technical expertise and to grow and, and learn, um, really, really rigorously and hold yourself accountable to high standards for those things. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's how you do it. It's interesting because it, that explains a lot about my approach. Cause like I love fashion stuff. I want to shoot really epic editorial stuff like that. You can't see it behind that light. There's just a bunch of just like fashion ads. And I know my work is not quite there yet, but I, I realized that gap and I've realized that gap. And you know, on Instagram, how it now it's starting to show you your work two years ago. Has that started to happen to mm-hmm. you? Oh, well now Instagram, if you look at like your likes or something, it'll be like two years ago on this date, you posted this. And that happened to me. And I look at it. I'm like, I fucking posted that. I'm like, oh my God, I, I took that photo. I edited that. I'm like, she's looking down. I'm like, thank God I don't shoot like that anymore. And so when you're talking about that gap, it's obvious and it's transparent. It's I, good to see growth. It's, it's good ama- to see growth. It's and to see it's growth. A, you know, and fashion is a great example. Um, just because you're taking pictures of clothes on people doesn't make a fashion, right? True. Like fashion is an industry. There's no fashion industry in Washington, DC. Yeah. Period. Facts. What, what do you it. think? What do you think about that? Like, so, so it's you, an industry that's like being like, it's like saying there's no, inter- there's like very little entertainment industry in DC. Yeah, obviously mm-hmm. there's government industry, right? Like uh, style, photographing style is different than photographing fashion. Very true. So do you think I'm in the wrong city? If you want to work in fashion? Yes. 
Mm. For sure. You're saying I should just get up and move to New York, essentially. Because yes. that's the fashion and city. And assist. And assist someone, yes. learn the ropes, and yes. get the clients that way. Just learn. Yeah. Develop your voice and learn. So what kind of city do you think DC is then? Mm, for what? For, and photography-wise. Also, I mean, DC for photography is a, is a photojournalism story, city, for sure. Really? Yeah. I mean, some of the best PJ shooters in the world are based here. You have so, so many like world press and Pulitzer winners here. Um, I'm a member of women photojournalists of Washington. There are historic, amazing, amazing women who are members and, you know, like the first female staff photographer of the Washington post is a member and she's, you know, she's older obviously. And to have access to that kind of perspective and, um, experience is really amazing as a photojournalist, uh, you don't have to cover politics if you live here, um, but you it's impossible to have a job as a full-time photographer here and not work s- at least somewhat. I don't know. That's not totally true. You can be a headshot photographer and not work in reportage. But if you want to be, if you want to like really build a, like a robust career that's respected in the photo community, which let's be honest, headshot photographers are not. Um, it's just, it's just work that pays the bills essentially. Well, it's, it's you're, and, and you can, you can run an amazing business doing that. Yeah. You are a service provider. There's no like creative, creative vision behind that. Um, you can approach it creatively and I am, I have no, I have like no judgment here for yeah. folks who want to run that kind of business. I think there's a huge need and a huge, they're a huge market and you can like definitely make great money doing that kind of work. Mm-hmm. If what you want to do is take pictures for a living but if you want to tell stories or you want to make something that that moves people or impacts the way that they view the world, uh, that's not going to do it. <laughs> mm. So in, and in D.C., um, f- photojournalism is the name of the game because you have Nacho that's based here. All of the major publications um, have major ha- have like major um, bureaus here, if not are based here in the case of The Washington Post. Um, the Times has a big bureau here. Um, you know, there, a lot of news is generated here and, um, you know, with all of the activity on the Hill and everything, it is constantly, there are things to report on. It's interesting because a lot of the successful photographers that I meet, like yourself, they tend to be in the political sphere in some way. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not a political photographer. Yeah, not like, at all. I have my friend Gabby Demchuk covers, covers, uh, politics for the New York times and is an, an incredible artist. Mm-hmm. Um, on top of that, uh, she approaches that typically very dry work with an, an amazingly creative eye and sense of color and light. And she's really amazing. Um, I, I don't, I don't regularly go to Rayburn to report on breaking political news. So like, that's not my beat. Yeah. Um, I do, I do portrait in the political sphere sometimes, mm-hmm. but even then, um, like I tend to be, my, my style is more edgy than that would, than that allows. Do you, so your photography for the most part, it's always tends to be shining light on social issues, I guess. No, I, I do lifestyle and portrait work. So, um, lifestyle is, um, sort of like people doing stuff Yeah. in like an aspirational sort of way. Okay. Um, I do a lot of, I do a lot of casting of real people and everything is. So not bloggers. Not blogger lifestyle stuff. No. You mean? No, I have no interest in that. So what's like an example of, if you can think, I don't mean to put you on the spot. So for instance, like Volkswagen, like an advertising agency would hire me to make pictures of, for Volkswagen. Okay. 
for instance, is like a, a project that I worked on. Okay. Um, so then I, we would, they, they would share the creative direction with me. I would go out and ca- I went out and cast some models. Um, they were doing the styling in house. So they did the styling, um, shared the shot list. We like, we did a whole production in here, makeup, blah, 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 all the things. And then we go around and like make pictures of them, like out in the world and doing stuff. Yeah. Oh, that lifestyle. That's, that's real work right there. Working for Volkswagen. That's yeah. awesome. It's really good. Yeah. How, how long ago was that? Mm, 2017. Oh, that's yeah. super recent. Yeah. Were so, you- it, it, and, and for me, uh, the lifestyle work is a sweet spot of the intersection of, um, the reportage approach and that authenticity and storytelling, uh, and the, um, financial and creative support of advertising agencies and brands. Yeah. Cause if you're just lining up doing headshots all day, like I've met that guy, I've met that guy who literally that's his day is just mm-hmm. 20 headshots a day. Mm-hmm. And when you're in a position, you're just like lacking money. You're like, man, that seems so attractive. Maybe I should do headshots. But then you're like, Oh, but creatively I would just die. Oh, well, and especially when you're just starting out, like you, yeah. you can, you can and should like try a bunch of different stuff and see what you like, learn, see what you can learn from it. Uh, throw some spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks and ultimately recognize that once you, once you hone your voice and figure out what you're about and where somebody comes to your website and you're like, Oh, you're the guy who does X, this one thing really, really well. Right. Like you can't be all things to all people and you shouldn't have to try. So you're saying you shouldn't be a generalist photographer. You should have some sort of specialty or some sort of angle or aesthetic on something. Mm -hmm. Like, is it, do you identify your own? Do you kind of yeah? See I do. I do lifestyle and portrait work. Mm, but when someone looks at it, they'll be like, "Oh, she does it in this manner." Yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you go to my website, it's it should be at least pretty clear what it is that I do. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it is. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking about your Instagram your Instagram feed, and I'm just like, it's it's really good work. It's it it always seems to be landscape. Well, but that's a that's a deliberate choice that I made for that platform. Oh, that's just like in your aesthetic on Instagram. Yeah. Mm. That's a design choice that I made for Instagram. Why is that? Cleaner. Just looks better. Yeah. Do white space gives the eye space to rest as your and and like slows things down. I'm actually in the process right now of um deciding what uh, I'm going to change the the art direction on the Instagram. Really? What are you thinking? Can I ask? I don't want to no, give it's with a it. secret. Is it really? Yeah. Oh. You'll have to wait and see. The new Instagram sauce. I well, to- but I don't I don't know. I, I think Insta, I think social media is a necessary evil, mm, but, but I, I don't, I don't put a ton of stock in like totally. Uh, I, I, I am not convinced of the ROI of Instagram. Really? So your clients don't bring it up like Volkswagen won't be like, we loved your Instagram. They'll be like, we loved your website. It, it they will say the person from the advertising agency loves you and your work, right? Relational, right? Like person to person. And that's what I really value is building real and meaningful relationships with people. Mm, so it's not like Kate's work is so amazing. We should hire her. It's like Kate's an awesome person. Both. Her work, her, her work, her work speaks volumes. It's great both. too. Both. We should work with her. Both. Yeah. It has to be both. People want to work with people they like. So what about those photographers who are just like the hermits in the back of the room? But what are they just screwed? No, I think everybody has their different approach. I take my approach and I value personal relationships because I'm really extroverted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you are. Um, and I, and I recognize that that is a way for me to play to my strengths. You're freaking ninja. 
Totally. That, that's literally what I told you. I was like, I was like okay, you're a ninja. <laughs> you are an event ninja. Uh, are you still shooting on that mirrorless camera? The one that I saw you with that day? Uh, I have not decided if I'm going to keep that or not because it there's some banding at higher ISOs. So I might get rid of it, actually. I haven't decided yet. What do you mean by banding higher ISOs? Um, when, and this is it's documented that this camera does this. It's the new Nikon Z7, um, which is a mirrorless camera. Um, when you are pushing it, uh, when you're pushing the ISO in lower light situations, you get um, like bands of color across the whole, uh, across the image. Where, where like, it's not, it, it's not registering. Mm-hmm. It's not registering um, like what your eye sees because it doesn't have that like mechanical flip. The digital sensor is, um, is like, Failing to yeah, properly it just composite can't operate. what it's yeah at lower light. How high are we talking here, though? Not that high. Not high enough for it to be okay. And it's never okay if you're paying that much for a tool. So like past six thousand ISO? No, not even. Whoa. Yeah, I know. You're the one who actually changed my uh, my opinion on that. You were like, "Yo, push your ISO," and I was like, "What?" You're like, "Yo, push your ISO," because I was amazed you weren't using on camera flash, yeah. which I feel like is very intrusive. It depends. It's just a different aesthetic and it's, it creates a different mood. Very true. It creates like, it, to me, sometimes it feels kind of caustic and stale and very stiff. I really like, I really like flash in the, for the right application. What's that to you? Because it changes the interaction that you're having with a person. Very true. I feel like someone's way more open to be silly and open up when it's not this crazy light on them and they're not like deer in the headlights. I, I, it, it depends. Really? Yeah. Sometimes I'll like, Sometimes I'll use flash as a tool to like really raise the energy and like make somebody feel extra fabulous. Interesting. Ah, so they want to feel fabulous. Flash, oh, the lights are on me kind of thing, right? Well, it, de- it depends on the person and, it, and, <clears throat> but, and just as important, it depends upon the story you're trying to tell, right? Like all these things, cameras and lights and whatever, like all of them are just tools and people get really caught up in the gear and the technicality. Um, but fail to think about why they're using what they're using and how that choice will influence the aesthetic of the image and how that aesthetic influences the story that's being told. Mm. So when your camera starts banding, you're just pissed because it's not telling your story properly. I mean, that's a technical glitch and it's bullshit if I'm paying that much for a camera. How much was that camera? I just want my, I just want my tools to work. Yeah. I just want just work, but the size doesn't matter. I, um, size might matter, especially if it's the carry it all, all party. Uh, I, I mean, I, I appreciated the small, the, like the smaller profile of the camera for sure. Um, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like having but this warship is. it needs to do is... what it's meant to do and correctly. Mm-hmm. Like for me, camera, like cameras are tools. That's it. Like you understand your tool, you know how to use it. You know how to um, control it to execute your creative vision. And that's but, it. But that's it. You don't walk into a, a restaurant and have an amazing meal and then go back in the kitchen and say, hey, chef, that was an amazing meal what kind of oven do you have back here? <laughs> right? Never, literally never. Yeah. So the fact, and, and, you know, it's, it's definitely an example of like misogyny in our, the male dominated industry that is photo, this like dick swinging contest of like, Oh, what are you shooting with? Like, Oh, I hate what that. lens is that? Oh, I hate that. It's just, it's just a tool. Like I have gaff tape over the name of my camera. Same. I used to, I used to do that it's, a lot more. Like it's, it's a, it's unnecessary. Like the tool does not dictate what the images will look like necessarily. Like you can make great 100%. pictures with a disposable camera. Like 100%. I could shoot the shit out of, uh, out of Russian ball with a disposable camera from right in. It probably looked great. Yeah, it looked great. 
it'd be a totally different aesthetic. And that story would be told in a different way with a different tone. Like I'm playing to a much more uh, cinematic space with the gear choices that I am making for that shoot. For that event I met you at. Mm-hmm. It and was very general. cinematic. After we spoke at dinner, you said, yo, crank your eyes. When I stopped using on-camera flash, the photos literally looked like cinematography photos. Like I was like, whoa, she's so right. She just blew my mind on this shit. Um, but you ultimately, like, you have to spend the time to think about what your creative vision mm-hmm. is, what your voice is. You know, like I've spent years figuring out what mine is. Yours might be different. Exactly. No, 100%. But in in that event space, it, it's like I'm still kind of like a, a a newborn fawn in the event space when it comes to just being and any amount of expertise in that. It's funny you say that about the about the tape because when I first started going to like these stupid meetups and stuff, at least now they kind of seem dumb to me. Um, I would tape up all my gear, the lenses, everything, because I just it was so tired of people being like, "What camera is that? What lens?" And I would just say Canon. And that's it because they would just look and be like, oh, it's a Rebel T5i, like some intro YouTube camera. And yeah, I take these amazing photos and people are like, oh my God, you must be shooting full frame or whatever. I'm like, no, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a crop sensor camera. It's nothing yeah. crazy. Yeah. I started my professional career with a crop sensor camera and a 55 millimeter prime. Nice. Or a 50 millimeter prime rather. That's the exact same that's I it. started with. Yeah. Just that $100 lens from Canon. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, it. The nifty 50. Yeah. That's what they call it. I think yeah. served me well. Yeah. Cause that's what I could afford. And I shot the hell out of that lens before I bought a second one Mm -hmm. and it restricted like with anything, like with any artistic medium providing restrictions on your process encourages creativity. And you only shoot prime lenses. I prime, I almost entirely shoot prime lenses. I I really don't care for zoom lenses. Why is that? Uh, they're, they're big and heavy. They're less sharp. Um, and they make people lazy. That's like, true. If you're shooting with primes, it's cheaper, it's sharper, it's more atmospheric, uh, and it forces you to like think strategically about where you're standing, why you're standing there, how people are moving, and how you are going to react to someone moving, as opposed to just like planning yourself on one space and like zooming in and out, yeah, which is lazy. One hundred percent. When people ask me how they should start, I say use primes. Now for like the studio yeah. in this in this kind of cramped studio i will use a zoom lens just because i'm like all right i don't have that much space to go back with like a 50 millimeter lens let me just use my zoom lens but when i do go back to the prime it just feels so good sometimes it's light it's like a little agile camera Hmm. so do you where where do you is there a specific destination you want to go with what you do in your photography is there some sort of like pinnacle or some sort of publication you want to shoot for or something you want to like start what does that look like to you? Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm always uh, looking to collaborate with people who are working in the top of their fields and working creatively mm-hmm. um, who share my values. So, you know, next steps will be to relocate to a bigger market, get an agent and start working on way, way more advertising lifestyle stuff. That's interesting is the, getting the agent part of being a photographer. Mm-hmm. Is that just because you're in so demand or because your work can appeal to more people? What is the cause? With um, one, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely at the point that they say that you should think about getting an agent. Like I'm shooting a ton of editorial for a lot of national clients. I am shooting um, commercial advertising stuff, like produced stuff regularly. Um, and like, I'm, I'm really like, I'm at the very limits of my bandwidth and have been for a couple of years. Oh, wow. Um, 
and I will have to relocate to a different market in order to, to do that because a lot of that work just doesn't exist here. Where are you thinking? Mm, we'll see. Okay. You can't say? Yeah. It, I mean, obviously to me, it seems like New York, LA, just a, a bigger city. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 We, we can't spill the beans on that. Not yet. That's sweet. Yeah. So, um, man. And that'll change, right? Like I love photography because it's impossible to get bored. I get bored really easily. I like the thing that's new and next and changing constantly and evolving and growing. And the medium itself is very malleable. Um, new tools are constantly coming out for instance, but, um, it can flow as my interests flow. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, you know, I may, you know, relocate to a big city and spend the next, excuse me, hiccup, five or 10 years, um, you know, working on international advertising campaigns and then move out to the country and decide I just want to do, you know, like fine art, conceptual reportage work and produce books uh, that include poetry and, um, and, and teach. But at the end of the day, it's like the photography will kind of be at the but center change, there. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Because for me, like the, the uh, again, the image is not the focus. It is the, it is the proof, the output of the process, the relationship, the trust, uh, the research. Storyteller comes to it's my mind. It's all storytelling. You seem like you're just so good at telling people stories. I mean, hopefully. <laughs> That's the goal. Yeah. But it, it, and it, constantly it, challenging myself. You asked about goals, like constantly challenging myself uh, to think about how stories uh, can be told in innovative ways. Mm-hmm. So finding collaborators to do that. Yeah. On a deeper level, it's not just let's take some dope photos and post them on IG. It's, it's no, let's, let's do something deeper than something meaningful. Yeah. Why are you spending your life doing this? What does it mean? Mm-hmm. Cause what it, it, value are you adding to yourself? but more importantly to others. Yeah. To the world. What, what is this? How does this change anything? Right. So you, you know, you mentioned that, um, earlier, you know, that not everybody like is political in the, in their work and you're right. Um, but it's important to me. And this is something I've learned through, um, my years of photographing that my values be manifest in the work Mm. that I'm walking the walk on my values through every, every aspect of my life, including, and especially this one. It's this life. Right. Yeah. Um, that's, that's so true. So every photo is, is just an extension of yourself. It's, it's your thought in a frozen image. And, and the questions that I'm asking and the parts of myself that I'm investigating, right. Um, you know, the witch project was a great opportunity to, uh, provide a framework for self-reflection about my own spiritual beliefs and practices, Mm -hmm. for instance. Um, But each person that I photograph uh, and each project that I take on and each story that I tell, it teaches me a little bit more about myself as well. Nice. So what do your parents think about what you do now? Uh, They really appreciate that I am an entrepreneur that's, Swag. that's the framework through which they find value and that's this, true you know and and that's it's not a dig they they just uh don't have a, a ton of experience in what it means to be an artist mm-hmm. and live a life um and, and and be a creative person and to lead with that quality and they're both quite creative um but wouldn't 
that wouldn't be the first adjective that they would choose for themselves. Um, so they, but they really appreciate like that I have forged my own path and, and created my own life in a very entrepreneurial way. Entrepreneur is such like a, a 20,000 word. It's, it's such a, such a 2K word, such a new word. Entrepreneur. Everyone wants to be it. What about all, all these people who want to be photographers? What do you think about that? Do you feel like it's too oversaturated and we're kind of getting lost and diluted photography as an art? I think there's a lot of dilution and there, and because of social media, there is a lot of um, derivative work being made. There's a lot of homogenous work being made. There is a particular aesthetic to Instagram, for instance, um, yes. that becomes very prescriptive. You know, people spend a lot of time flick, 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 looking at other people's work um, and their own work starts to mirror that. And they're not necessarily learning about um, art history and the history of photography and this longstanding tradition since the 1860s and understanding the context in which they are picking up a camera or even picking up their iPhone. Um, and that's important. Like it's important to do the work to understand um, how you got here and why and, 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 you know, the art historical context for making these images. I think it's great that, um, technology has really democratized access to image making. I think we could do a lot more to encourage uniqueness and individuality in voice and, um, to not sort of, when you say the history, do you mean like the history of why photography even started or why it even exists? Art history. Yeah. The his well, and studying the work of masters. Yeah. Going I mean, all the way back. Who are, are there any masters that come to your mind? I mean, there's, there's so many and okay. what, and what, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, inspires me may not inspire you. True, so true, I always true. encourage folks to, to go out and do, do their own research. And that is an important part of finding your voice is to understand where it's coming from and, and why. So getting inspired by other people's Instagram posts is probably not the best. Maybe look into the past and see yes. where it's come from, how it's evolved. Yeah, and study, study, study the masters. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of them. Heck yeah, there are. Which is great. And, you know, but it, 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 compared to like painting, for instance, um, where it's, a photo is still considered to be sort of the ugly stepchild of the fine art space. And um, there's a lot of catching up to do on an institutional level in terms of how photography is analyzed, approached and archived, curated and presented back to the world. Um, it's still not as valued. Um, By institution, you mean just like in schools, like museums, museums, yeah, yeah, like cultural institutions. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of work that can be done then, and because the medium is relatively new in comparison to a lot of other mediums, it's still very much constantly evolving, and people are constantly asking, you know, what does it mean to photograph? What is lens-based art? Um, how can we take that apart? Uh, and um, put it back together in a, in a way that is that is more interesting and that is different. Um, what is a photograph? What does it mean to photograph? So, like, what is a photograph of nothing, for instance? Is that mm. is that possible to create? Right. Um, and studying photographic theory, right, uh, that asks questions like this. Um, there are some really amazing writers um, that have spent a lot of time building. Uh, these conversations and arguments, it's important to understand those things and to ask how they fit into one's own practice. It, it, it makes me think to the idea of the fact that 
photography is so available to everyone. Mm -hmm. The fact that anyone can do it, it's, it's, it's so available. So I guess it becomes harder for people to delineate it as, as opposed to like oil paint, Mm -hmm. easels and oil paint that's available to everyone too. Mm -hmm. But the barrier threshold of creating something good is way higher than someone who takes a photo of their two-year-old son. Oh, what you said is good, right? Like what is a good photograph? Um, it's hard to contextualize that, but it feels like I'm walking to a trap here. Um, (laughs) I guess a good photograph is something that makes you feel something when you take away all the technical aspects. It's something that could tell a story and shares some insight to whatever this is, or makes you appreciate what is in the photo. There's not a wrong answer to to that question, right? Like, I think it's important that each person think about what a good photograph is to them. True. And to understand um, how they arrived mm. at that answer. And that's your unique perspective as a photographer. Yeah, it's part of your voice. That's part of figuring out your voice. Mm-hmm. What's your, what's your, actually, hold, before I even entertained that stupid thought, I was going to ask you about erotic and nude photography, how you felt about that stuff. So there should be a museum for photography. I mean, there are museums for photography. Really? Uh, of course there has to be. But. I mean, the major, the major institutions and some are, you know, do better than others, mm-hmm. um, have photographic collections and are, are building them more rapidly than they are building, uh, their collections of other things. Cause they're sort of playing catch up. Um, but, uh, you know, you have institutions like, um, ICP in New York, um, or the Annenberg center, in Los Angeles. Um, and there are a bunch of other galleries, uh, that do a good job of driving conversations, aperture that do a good job of driving conversations about contemporary photography. That's interesting. Cause I, we went to the national portrait gallery yesterday and mm-hmm. I did not expect to see photography there. And Why not? it just, it, like you said, it seems unappreciated. Like it seems like a, like a lesser art form. I mean, when I saw it, 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 it was just like first floor when you get to the main collection, there's no real photography. It's all mm-hmm. just paintings. Mm-hmm. And it seems, it almost seems like they're saying that a painting is greater than a they great are photo. Saying that. They are saying that. And that's what the market is saying too. Because if you look at how these things are priced, um, b- both from gallery sales and from um, secondary market sales like Sotheby's or Christie's, like the numbers are wildly different. Yeah, I can imagine. Jesus, I follow a photographer named Tyler Shields. Are you familiar with his work? Mm-mm. You know what? He did the um, the Kathy Griffin bleeding Trump head where she was holding Trump's head. Oh, yeah. He did that photo that got in tons of trouble. Um, he sells his stuff on Sotheby's and I was like, dang, that's so cool. But even then, it, it the, the prices did seem kind of low compared to what other like an oil or a Basquiat would sell for. That's the market. <sighs> Hurts my soul. Hurts my soul. Dang, Kate. So I, I feel like we've cover some great ground here thanks for having me yeah for sure um before we wrap up um i just got i think i had two questions what's your what's your 2019 looking like how's that looking for you get some exciting projects coming up uh i do and you can't talk about them no oh my god this is killing me i'm so curious (laughs) i got ndas for days man oh really yeah (laughs) it's like that yeah it's like that okay Jesus. So stand by. <laughs> okay. Okay. And so then my last thing will be because we cannot talk to you about that. Jesus. Um, that's kind of cool though. Is uh is there any advice or anything that you would or tips or anything you'd want to say to like new photographers or photographers in the game, um, photographers who just started yesterday, photographer who's three years in, whatever it is, is there anything that like a tips or anything you'd want to like 
share to them, that person who's listening. Yeah, right I mean, now. we've talked a lot. We've talked a lot about we have, a lot of we them. We have. We really have. Um, I think um, the idea that you need to really invest in finding your voice, mm-hmm. not trying to be everything to everybody, but to think really critically about what it means for you to be a photographer, why you are making the work, um, to seek out uh, critical feedback on your work, uh, opening yourself up to that being vulnerable so that you can continue to grow and improve. Um, and to make a lot of stuff and to recognize that what a lot of what you're going to make is not going to be very good. And you will hate 98% of your stuff even six months later, but it's important to go through that iterative process to come to a place where your, your voice is coming through clearly. Like a create without hesitation thing. Just do it and don't think about it so much. And part of it is, you know, having a sense of play, but also a level of intention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like why are you making what you're making? Good mix of both. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Kate, Kate Warren, legendary Kate Warren. Jesus is is cool to have you on here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Guys, I will link to, um, your website and your yep. Instagram. GoKateShoot.com and at GoKateShoot. All right. I will link to all that and please look it up while you're driving right now because um, you might actually do that. It's really dangerous. Don't do that. Wait until you get home. <laughs> Spend some time with the work. <laughs> oh, yeah, and definitely check out the witch work. That, that was really cool. It's fun. Yeah. Thunder stories. Yeah. So that's it, guys. That's the 